Today's sermon text comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. This can be found in your pew Bible on page 981. Hear the word of the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. To count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Father, there is a testimony that I pray you would make my own, that you would make our own, that you would unite the hearts of the children of God in this room around that confession, and you would do it by setting before us today not the triumph of our wills, but a clear, spirit-enabled vision of the actual objective worth of Jesus Christ. And there is no one here, there is no Christian here, Father, we gladly confess that there is no Christian here who has plumbed the depths of the worth of Christ. Every single one of us has just begun to skim the surface of his worth. And yet even those skimmed portions shake us and strengthen us and encourage us and exhilarate us and humble us. And so Father, we ask for more. And we pray 
also for those not yet in Christ. That you would make this the first day of that confession for them. And you would do this by the power of your spirit according to your great mercy. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know what it looks like. It looks like we're not in Matthew 23. But your eyes have fooled you before, have they not? We are in Matthew 23, and let me tell you uh, what we're doing. We're actually looking at the fruit of Matthew 23, at least some of it. And that's because Philippians 3 is the testimony of a Pharisee who has been rescued from his ungodly moralism by the same Jesus Christ who pronounced those seven woes on the scribes and the Pharisees in the temple court in Matthew 23. This uh, passage, Philippians 3, is living proof of the readiness and the willingness and the ability and the power of Jesus Christ to rescue even the worst sinner by the power of his cross. And what Philippians 3, or what Paul's testimony in Philippians 3 tells us is the story of the gospel. And not only in Paul's life, but in every Christian's life, of course, there are uniquenesses to this story but the, that are particular to Paul's life. But those uniquenesses do not be distracted by those uniquenesses. Because they are far less significant than what is the universal or the universal things that are common in this testimony that are common in the life of every Christian. And, and I would summarize it this way, that this, this experience, this universal experience that is common to all Christians is this, that the gospel always brings upheaval. Always. It does it initially when we are converted by that gospel. Upheaval. Upheaval in terms of the way we think about God, the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about life. There is upheaval. It happens initially at our conversion. And guess what happens for the rest of the Christian life? Continual upheaval. How could it be otherwise? If the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, how could it produce anything other than just unceasing upheaval and disruption? And is that not your experience, my brothers and sisters? Upheaval. You never, you never reach a point where you say, okay, I've had enough repentance and enough grace. Got that. No, the gospel is disruptive by its very nature. It is disturbing by its very nature in good ways and in deep ways. And there is a relentlessness to the gospel. Uh, Paul's testimony reminds us that the gospel of... I was trying to think of how to illustrate this. And... uh, This may not work, and if it doesn't, okay, back to the drawing board. But, you know, so often I think we, the way we think about about God is that, and conversion is that 
is that, okay, we're living our lives basically this way, and, and suddenly we get exposed to the gospel, and so we, we kind of add God to our lives. As if, as if he were, or the gospel were an app that you download from heaven, and you incorporate into your existing status quo, you integrate the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ, you, you kind of fit that into the rest of your life and you go about living your life. And sure, it's maybe your most important app, but my point in that illustration is it is wrong, it is completely wrong-headed to think of the gospel as something you add to your life. The gospel is not an adornment that you integrate into your life. Jesus Christ is not interested in fitting himself into anyone's life. His mission is quite different. It is to make us fit for God. And so by his very nature, he is going to be disruptive. The gospel is an entirely new operating system. It teaches us thoughts that we have never thought before. It shows us ways that we have never imagined before. Thoughts and ways that are as much higher than our own as heaven is above the earth. And these these heaven-high thoughts and these heaven-high ways of the gospel always bring up evil with them because God doesn't think the way we think. And God doesn't do things or work the way that we work. And Paul's testimony is a living proof of that. And really, if we thought about our own lives, our testimonies are living proof of that same truth. God does not think the way we think. Hallelujah. Because if God thought the way that we think, guess what? He never would have sent his son to seek and save that which was lost. He would have sent his son to seek and destroy that which was lost. Right? That's the way we think. What do you do with your enemies? You crush them. What did God do with his enemies? He was crushed for them. You see that? It's disruptive. That, that blows my old operating system. That destroys my assumptions. It's exactly what Darren was talking about. C- taking every thought captive to obey Jesus Christ means that, means that the way I think is not going to be the way I used to think. How could it be? And so off of last week, fresh off of last week, and thinking about the irreconcilable differences, and that's what they are, irreconcilable. These are two totally divergent operating systems, the false religion of moralism and the gospel. Fresh, uh, fresh from thinking about that from Matthew 23, I want to look together with you at Paul's testimony from Philippians 3 and to see how he describes this gospel upheaval in terms of being rescued by Jesus from confidence in the wrong flesh, which is moralism. That was, you know, confidence in the wrong flesh is confidence in our own flesh. That was Paul's way of life, just like it was every one of our ways of life before conversion, rescued from that by Jesus Christ for confidence in the right flesh, which is Jesus's flesh. And we'll do that under two headings. Well, really three 
The first is, what is confidence in the wrong flesh? And the second one is confidence. What's confidence in the right flesh? And then we're going to conclude by thinking about two pastoral applications. Okay. Now, we've already, for those of you who are just flying in, and you weren't here last week, uh, some of what I say uh, assumes a background uh, that from last week. So forgive me if there's some things that are not totally clear to you. What is confidence in the wrong flesh? Confidence in the wrong flesh is the essence of moralism. It is confidence in, before God in our own flesh, the achievements of our own lives. It's a way of living in which my functional, remember this distinction, the difference between what you say your official trust is and what you actually live out as your functional trust, that's a huge distinction. And what, and what confidence in the wrong flesh is, is, is it's, it's the way of living in which your functional trust, your functional hope, your functional security, or let me put it in first person because this is still a struggle in my life. Confidence is the wrong, confidence in the wrong flesh is when my functional hope, my functional trust, my functional security, and my functional identity are defined in terms of my decisions and my deeds for God rather than his decisions and his deeds for me in Christ. That's what confidence in the wrong flesh is. That's what moralism is. That is not the gospel. You don't need the gospel to live that way. You don't need the gospel to think that way. That's how everyone thinks. Look at how Paul defines a Christian in verse 2. Not the first part. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate. Oh, excuse me, verse 3, I mean. I'm sorry. For we are the circumcision. In other words, we're, we're really the heirs of Israel. And notice what he says. Who worship by the Spirit of God and glory, literally boast, in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, notice how it's binary. You either boast in Jesus Christ, or you put confidence in your flesh. This is not something, this is not, this is not something that can be a joint venture. You can't, you can't have confidence in your flesh and glory in Christ Jesus. You can't do those things. The one negates the other. Okay? Now, that's really important to see. Now, of course, that's, that's Paul speaking. That's Paul's post-conversion after, right? He's saying, hey, listen, now that I'm on this side of the gospel, let me tell you what it means to be reconciled to God, to, to really be a member of the people of God. It means that you worship in the Spirit of God. It means that you boast in Christ Jesus. Your boast is away from yourself. There's something or there are things about Jesus Christ that you boast in. You glory in him. You glory away from yourself. And you put no confidence in your own flesh. The focus of what it means to worship God is to look away. Now that's Paul's after, but what's his before like? Well, his before was very different from that. 
And often people are put off by the way Paul walks us through his spiritual resume in verses five through, really four through six. They think he's being a kind of proud. That's exactly the opposite of what he's doing. He's simply emphasizing how radical, how, how radical the upheaval is that Jesus Christ brought into his life. The difference between how he thought before and how he thinks now. This was not a gradual merger. This is a divergent operating system. And so look at Paul's uh, spiritual resume as he recites it. You know, his pre-conversion spiritual, or what he thought of as his spiritual resume. And his, uh, his spiritual uh, credentials, if you will, they are prodigious for an Israelite. Look at this. Now, these things don't impress us. But in Paul's world, this was Harvard Business School, top of the class. This, these were the keys that opened all the doors in the world that mattered to him. The only world that mattered to him. You have to think about it this way. These are all the diplomas that would get him into where he wanted to get. These are all the things on the resume that opened doors. The doors that Paul defined his life by. circumcised on the eighth day. That means his parents, from the beginning of his life, his parents, even when he could not keep the law on his own behalf, it was kept for him. Of the people of Israel, one of the covenant people, of the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Israel's first king, a Hebrew of Hebrews, that means... Despite all the pervasive influence of Greek culture and language, Paul was true to his heritage. As to the law of Pharisee, he was zealous for the word of God. He was zealous for the intersection between the word of God and the life of God's people. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, we'll get back to that in a minute, but notice how at the very beginning... Paul is telling us something about his resume that within the resume that he thought commended him, there were the seeds of the greatest condemnation. Because, of course, as things turned out, to be a persecutor of the church was exactly the opposite of what would gain him favor with God. And as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Uh, these are impressive spiritual credentials. And if you want to look, this is how Paul thought before his conversion. This is how he viewed the world before his conversion. And when Jesus came, it was all overturned. But before we get to that upheaval, let me just point you to a very helpful summary of this whole mindset that Paul gives us later in verse 9. How, does he, how would Paul summarize what it meant for him to have confidence in the wrong flesh, and therefore what it means for us to have confidence in the wrong flesh. And I think that summary uh, is is in verse 9. Now, in verse 9, we're going to look at it in more depth later, but verse 9 is very important because in that verse, Paul sets forth the contrasting, uh, irreconcilable, non-overlapping definitions of confidence in the wrong flesh and confidence in the right flesh. And what confidence in the wrong flesh looks like is this. Having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Do you see that? 
Paul's contrasting that with the gospel, which is the, the, in the gospel, we receive a righteousness from God. But Paul's saying that before his conversion, the way he lived, and his resume confirms this, the way he lived was from the bottom up. That's what confidence in the wrong flesh is, my friends. It's when you live from the bottom up and you believe and live and trust that your job as a human being is to take God's rules and bring them into an intersection with your life and through your decisions, through your actions, through your non-decisions and through your non-actions, both your yeses and your nose, you produce a righteousness and you give it to God and you expect him to accept whatever it is that you hand to him. Now, of course, embedded in that way of thinking are very important and ungodly assumptions. One is you actually think you're capable of following the instructions to produce a righteousness that would survive the scrutiny of the God who we sang about earlier as holy, holy, holy? You think he's that low? You think you could raise yourself that high? No confidence in the wrong flesh is to trust in one's own behavior as one's functional savior and friends that is the default religion of every unredeemed human heart that's that's the setting of every religion other than christianity and let's call it what it is that is not just naive that is slavery that is oppressive now, one of the things I love to read in the New York Times is the business page. And uh, one of the things I love about the business page is that on a regular basis, I haven't quite figured out what the intervals are, but they will have these articles that are profiles of entrepreneurs and business executives, uh, mostly in the New York metro area, but also from around the country. And it's very interesting to see, uh, to read these. I just find it fascinating to see how how people use, some of them are young and some of them are really old and like even older than me. And what's very fascinating is to see the way that they think about business. Because I don't know anything about business. But you know, there's a theme that comes through in all of these interviews. And that is how competitive the business environment is today. I mean, you see it. You watch your, you watch your television ads, right? There's just so much drive for business. And, and what comes through in all of these interviews I've noticed over the years is, is the power of competition in the mindset of these entrepreneurs and these business leaders. It's competition uh, motivates them. Competition drives them. But it also terrifies them. Because things are so competitive and decisions are made so quickly that they are always, it, it is a certain fear they're always aware that somewhere out there, there may be a competitor that they don't know who is going to be able to beat them to a competitive advantage. Oh, friends, we ought to learn from that. I mean, that's the culture we live in. And we ought to be able to learn from that. You know in Proverbs chapter 1 where it says, Wisdom cries aloud in the street. 
and raises her voice in the markets. Oh, that is so true. Think about moralism. Think about confidence in the wrong flesh, my friends. You see what the, what the life vision is for yourself when you approach morality and piety that way, you are essentially acting as if you could always gain the competitive advantage. You are never going to be allowed to rest. You will always be needing to do more. That those rules, whether they are God's rules or man's rules, you're going to treat them because you have to. You're going to treat them as a ladder that you have to climb. And no matter how high you climb, no matter how far you ascend, no matter how much skill you exercise in climbing that ladder, you're going to get to what you used to think was the top rung and realize that it's the bottom rung. And when it comes, friends, to producing a righteousness of our own and giving it to God, do you understand who your competition is? Your competition is God and God's holiness. That's your competition. And you can't outcompete the living God in holiness. Do you see what a glorious wonder the gospel is? Freeing us from that kind of life. God is not a slave master. We cannot close that gap. We cannot get ahead of him around no matter what commandment you think you're keeping. You'll get around the corner and there's Jesus and his perfect righteousness. There's the thrice holy God. You cannot outholy him. So moralism is oppressive, it is self-destructive, and it is blasphemous. How did Paul get rescued from it? Well, by the very last thing he ever expected. He was riding on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians. And guess what happened to him? He discovered the body of Jesus Christ. Or maybe it would be better to say the body of Jesus Christ discovered him but not as a skeleton, not as a rotting corpse, but as the living Lord, reigning, risen, omnipotent. And this Jesus Christ, unsought by Paul, uninvited by Paul, strode right into the center of his life, kicked the door down, of his self-righteous self-understanding, moved moved without asking for permission right into the center of Paul's life and in the center of his life detonated a supernova. And that supernova blasted to smithereens every way that Paul had thought about himself and God and the world. And there was nothing left but debris. And in that debris field, of his shattered status quo, Jesus did something remarkable. He taught Paul how to count all over again. Because Paul used to define gain before God in terms of a righteousness of his own that came from the law. 
But now he understood that the definition that Jesus Christ was the ultimate measure of both gain and loss. That to have him was the ultimate gain and to not have him was the very definition of loss. And do you see what he's saying in verse 7? Notice, notice this. I love, I love, I love verb tenses. They, they are just so helpful. I know you don't believe that. But you should. And wait till we get to the pronouns later. Oh, you're just, it's going to be a day unlike any other. But look at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted, past tense, right? I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You see what he's describing there? He is describing the shockwave of his conversion. On that road to Damascus. There was upheaval that Jesus brought into his life. He had to bring upheaval. There's no way the Lord of glory could fit himself into a life that was organized around the principle of building a righteousness of his own uh, from the law and then presenting it to God. Jesus can't fit in that kind of life. And he won't. He refuses to. So maybe some of you are seeing that the Jesus you thought you knew is not the only Jesus who is. There's only one Jesus who is. He can't fit into that kind of life. He's unwilling to. He's the Lord of glory. You see, in a life where, where you are saying, hey, I'm a good person. We just translate in our language. I'm a good person. I'm not like that person. I try to keep the Ten Commandments. Okay, can we just talk honestly? That is just the biggest bunch of malarkey You don't try to keep the Ten Commandments because what's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. So let's just be honest. What you're really saying is, I'm not as bad as that guy. But guess what? That guy is not the standard that is the door to eternity. That guy is. Jesus Christ is. So Paul, Paul has been turned over and inside out. And he discovers, because Jesus Christ comes to him and teaches him, that it is the achievements of Jesus Christ's flesh alone that are the only legitimate basis for confidence before God. So friends, you, you may not be a Christian and you may be here and you may say, hey, this is not what I've heard about Christianity. Friends, this is Christianity. That cross is the purchase by Jesus Christ of universal, eternal, exclusively, exclusive monopoly power over every aspect of salvation. There is nothing that anyone can add to his work There is no substitute for his substitution. There is only one way, one truth, and one life available for eternal life. And it is Jesus Christ. And today, that living Lord, we may not be on the road to Damascus, but he means to bring his gracious upheaval into your life with no less fervor and no less zeal, and no less grace and mercy than he did for Saul of Tarsus on that day. Let him have his way with you. Because what he holds out to you 
is his own flesh, the only right flesh for all your confidence before God. And that, that's our second point. So let's transition to that. Look at, look at how Paul begins the passage in verse 1. On a note of joy. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. He's, he's only in chapter 3 and he's saying finally. He sounds like a preacher. He's got a whole, he's got two chapters left. He says finally. I love this guy. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Notice it's not just a generalized call to joy. He doesn't just say, be joyful. You're Christians. Christians are supposed to be happy. It's not what he says. It's very focused. It's very, very specific. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. No trouble to him and he's in a Roman prison. And it's safe for you. Joy in the Lord is somehow the security, the shield, <clears throat> excuse me, the protection for the Philippians. In what sense could those things be true? Well, I think if you drop down again to verse 3, we see what, why it is. He says in, in verse 3, he says, what it means to be a Christian is that, is that we boast in Christ Jesus. You see, that's what the secret of Paul's joy is. It's joy in the gospel. It's joy over the gospel. It's joy that has been birthed. It's not just generalized, be happy, you're a Christian. It comes from somewhere. That joy is the fruit of the news that he is going to explain in the subsequent verses that what comes to us in the gospel is this, is this gift from God, through Jesus Christ, of an alien righteousness. A righteousness, this is for sinners. A righteousness that is not of their own making. It's alien, it comes from outside of us. It's a righteousness for men. This is what the gospel promises that, that Paul is about to explain. It's a righteousness for men that does not come from men. Okay, I want that to sink in. It's a righteousness for men that does not come from men. In other words, it's not like what Paul is describing in verse 9. A righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Uh-uh. It's a righteousness for men that does not come from men, but it comes from God through the one man, Jesus Christ. And this is the wonder, I think. It's, it, it's really this gospel truth that Paul is celebrating in verses 8 and 9. This is what it means to him to gain Christ. To gain Christ. Such an interesting way of thinking about becoming a Christian. I prayed the prayer. Oh, that's so boring. I walked the aisle. That is so boring. I got saved. So boring. I'm ready to yawn. Ah, but you tell me that conversion is to gain Christ. Now I'm awake. Now I'm awake because you're telling me that to become converted means to gain a person. And there is, there is no person like Jesus Christ. 
all the heroes and all the champions and all the things we love about all the heroes and the champions in literature or in movies or in history, they do not compare to Jesus Christ. Read all you want. Study history all you want. Watch every movie you want. Sing every song you want. You will never find a hero who exceeds the glory of Jesus Christ. And when you become a Christian, when Jesus Christ brings that gracious upheaval, what happens in the debris field is that he teaches you that what it means for you to have become a Christian is that you have gained him. You've gained him. See, Christianity is so much more than a creed. Look at how Paul contrasts the two ways, again in verses 8 and 9. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. And what kind of righteousness is that? The righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, this is what all false religion has in common. It puts confidence in the wrong flesh. So you want to know you want to know, I shared last week about my conversation with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay, so you meet a Mormon, you meet a Jehovah's Witnesses, you meet a witness, you meet a Hindu, you meet an atheist. I don't care who you're talking to. The first question you should always ask these folks is how is it that you are vindicated in life? What is it, and you can talk, if you, it's a little different with an atheist, okay? But with somebody who professes some kind of religious faith, ask them in their system how it is that you could know, uh, even ultimately, how it is that you could know that your life has been good enough. You need to ask them that question because you've got to get to the heart. Because that's where the difference, the vast chasm of difference between Christianity and every other religion and every other way of living, that's when that's going to become apparent. Because every other system is going to go from the bottom up. But Christianity comes from the top down, a righteousness from God. You see, a righteousness from God is going to be perfect. It's going to, by definition, be satisfactory. It's going to meet the holiness of God because it is a righteousness from God. You see, the gospel is so stunning that God, this high one, stoops for the low ones. And Paul is saying, you see, these have no, they, they, there's nothing in common. These are totally different operating systems. There is no compatibility. Because the gospel puts confidence in the right flesh, Jesus Christ's. The true religion of the gospel calls us to look away in faith 
from ourselves and exclusively and jealously to the achievements and the achievements and accomplishments of the right flesh and there is only one right flesh in the universe Jesus Christ's See how Paul says this righteousness through faith, the, the, the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. There's only one way. He holds monopoly power over a righteousness that will confer a, a, a vindicated standing before God. And so the only way you get it is not by working, but by trusting in Christ. And that's how you, you receive that righteousness as a gift from God. Is that amazing? That's totally amazing. No one gives you gifts like that, my friends. The most important credential in the universe, you do not earn. God gives it to you. How could you be bored with that? The contrast, it could not be more radical and far-reaching. Either you have a righteousness from God Or, my friends, you have a righteousness of your own in tattered rags that is never going to let you stand. Now, to see what Paul means by this, I want to illustrate this from another passage. And I want want to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 4. And and the, the verses I'm interested in are on page 941 and 942 in your pew Bible. So if you go to Romans chapter 4, Paul is, is to, uh, this is, Romans 4 is a very important chapter in the book of Romans because Paul, having just, just kind of laid on the table in chapter 3 uh, the, the doctrine of justification by faith, now he, he addresses in chapter 4 uh, the potential objection that, hey, this justification by faith sounds like innovation. And Paul says, no, let's go all the way back to Abraham. This is what the Bible has always taught. And then he also talks about David. But he... Having put in context, having discussed uh, Abraham as uh, somebody who was justified by faith, you know, you know Genesis fifteen six, right? And he believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Paul then embarks on a very long illustration that runs from verse sixteen all the way, really, through verse twenty five, and and he unpacks this illustration. He's talking specifically about God's promise to uh, Abraham and Sarah about the birth of Isaac. So let me, let me just begin to read at verse 16, and I'll show you why I think this is relevant to what we're talking about. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, all of Abraham's offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. That's speaking, God speaking about Abraham. In the, now he's going to explain what, is the, what was the nature of Abraham's faith in God that led to God declaring uh, Abraham righteous in his sight. In the presence of God in whom he believed. Now notice this this phrase is going to be very important. In whom he believed. Who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's Paul's description of God. 
who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Why does Paul mention that? Well, keep, keep reading. In hope, he, this is Abraham, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. In other words, right, God came to Abraham and said, I'm going to give you a son. And, and through that son, you're going to be the father of many nations. When you're Abraham, that sounds crazy. And yet, Paul's saying, in hope against hope, Abraham believed. So where was his hope? He did not, verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Here's what I think is so important about this. Paul, in context, is talking about justification by faith. And in justification by faith, what happens is that God, on the basis of faith in Christ, God not only forgives a sinner all of his or her sins, pardons them completely, eternally, but then also reckons the righteousness of Christ to that sinner. And Paul, in order to illustrate that, uses this story from Abraham, Abraham's life. Now, now, I think the reason is this, that just as God brought an heir forth for Abraham, justifying the ungodly. God justifies the ungodly by calling into existence that which does not exist, something that has not existed before, which is a justified sinner. God, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things which do not exist, the reason Paul uses this story is because that is exactly what happens when God justifies a sinner. You see, a justified sinner cannot produce itself. That is a contradiction unless God, out of nothing, nothing in the man, nothing in the woman, nothing in the child, says, let there be a justified sinner now. Just as God brought the universe into being, and he was the only one who could, there is only one who can bring a justified sinner into existence. You see how this, is gonna, this goes against the grain of every thought of moralism, which says, hey, with the right rules and the right information and the right exertions, I can, in the cauldron of my own experience, produce a life that at the end will be a trophy that I present to God. Paul is saying, that is not the way God does things. It's not the way he made the universe. It's not how he justifies a sinner. Look at Abraham and Sarah. They were, they were impotent and infertile. There was no way that an heir could come forth from them. There was no seed of hope within them. There was no ability or potential to be the fulfillment of this promise of God. There was only one way an heir was going to come forth from Abraham and Sarah in accordance with God's promise, and that is if God himself fulfilled the promise. 
Do you see that this is exactly what the gospel is? There is no way that a sinner can present a righteousness to God unless God gives to the sinner a righteousness from God and calls into being out of nothing, my friends. No merit in you, no achievements in you. In fact, contrary to achievements and merit, out of your guilt, out of your perdition, out of your condemnation, God says into that darkness, speaks in his sovereign grace and says, let there be a justified sinner. A righteousness from God. That's what you are, my Christian brother and sister. The universe and its creation is an illustration of what God has done in your soul. It's not the other way around. So go look at the stars tonight and think about the light that God has ignited in your heart. The light of Christ. Friends, Jesus Christ presented a perfect life to God because none of us had or ever will. And so now none of us has to except through him. The only perfect life, the Christian life, the only, the, only, the only perfect life the Christian is required to present to God is the only one he or she can present to God, which is Jesus Christ's perfect life. There is no room for us to crawl up on the podium of the universe and and share the glory of Jesus. Friends, let him have it all alone because then you will know that the righteousness you are presenting to God has no flaws. It's perfect. It's spotless because it's Jesus's alone. Friends, your righteous standing with God does not come about through the intersection between your life and God's law. That's not where your justification comes from. It can't. Your justification, your righteous standing before God comes from the intersection of Jesus Christ's life and God's law. Moralism wrongly and arrogantly and blasphemously assumes that there is something in a sinner to work with. either for the sinner to work with or for God to work with. But friends, there is nothing but death. There is nothing but guilt. There is nothing but hardness of heart and a darkened understanding. And God comes in to that darkness and says, let there be light. Let Jesus have the glory. So now let's close by thinking about two two questions that are raised by what Paul says. And I'm going to have to rush through these. The first is, I, I want to think with you, there's two expressions in this passage that I think are very, very important to understand. They get to the heart of what it means to be a Christian. The first is, what does it mean to know Christ? That's in verses 8 and 10. And secondly, what does it mean to be found in him? That's verse 9. So let's let's think first about uh, verse 8 and 10. What does it mean to know Christ? 
And there, there are three things about this that I want, to, I want to emphasize for you. You notice that when Paul, if we go back to Philippians 3, sorry, I got kind of stuck in Romans 4. If you go back to Philippians 3 and you look at verse 8 with me, We've already seen that in verse 7, he's describing when he says, I counted, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. When he gets to verse 8, the, the tense of the verb changes. And now he says, indeed, I count everything. And now that's present tense. Now in the Greek, the present tense is, is different from the sense of it, the force of it is different from ours in English. It ordinarily has a progressive sense. So, so that the way you would read verse 8 would be like this. If you're going to kind of try to carry that progressive sense into English, it would say like this. Indeed, I am counting everything as loss. You see, if verse 7 was Paul describing the shockwave of his initial conversion, in verse 8, he's describing uh, the reality that in the Christian life, that, that shockwave hasn't ended. In fact, it, it, didn't, it didn't end at his conversion. It began at his conversion, and it's continuing to reverberate throughout the entirety of his Christian life, and it's enveloping him and surrounding him even as he sits in a Roman prison cell. And he's just reminding us that what it means to be a Christian is to be continually converted and reconverted by that upheaval of the gospel. And so... I promised you a pronoun. I want to I wanna keep my promise. Look at verse 8 again. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Do you see that? My Lord. Not the Lord. My Lord. There's a personal pronoun there, not a definite article. And lest you think that's not important, I want, to, I, want to, I want to just impress upon you that the difference between heaven and hell lies in that difference. Because if Jesus Christ, my friends, let me just speak very frankly with you. If Jesus Christ is no more to you than the Lord, then he is no more to you than he is to the demons and to Satan. No. They declare that he is the Lord. What they refuse to give him is the my. Friends, there is nothing more important that I'm going to say this morning than that you get inside that my that you crawl inside of it, that you pursue it, that you own it, that you desire it, that you understand it. There is nothing more important in your life than to be able to echo that my. The truth of Jesus Christ, not known objectively merely as the Lord. Yes, I confess him as the Lord. But the truth of Jesus Christ... <clears throat> Owned subjectively as my Lord. You see, if all he is is the Lord to you, then all you are doing is handling the outsides of the holy things of the gospel. But the inside of the gospel is defined by that my. Remember we talked earlier about gaining Christ, that what it means to be a Christian is that you, you have a person, you've been enriched by a person, the best of all persons. 
There is no such thing as a spiritual Switzerland. To say the without my is to be in a position of hostility toward Jesus Christ. Because what you're saying, it's not neutrality, friends. It's hostility to just say the. Because what you're saying is, yes, I know. I admit he is Lord, but I will not submit to him as Lord. And that's a very dangerous place to be. And I pray that you wouldn't stay there. Do you know, Jesus wants you to crawl into that mind. He wants you to say, my. There are no obstacles in the heart of Jesus for you to move from the Lord to my Lord. There are none. His cross proves to you that there is nothing about himself that he is is that he wants to hold back from you. He already gave all of himself on that cross. So if there are any impediments to your moving this morning, my friend, from the Lord to my Lord, they are all in you. And pray as you become aware of them that Jesus will take them down. So that's point number one about knowing Christ. It's my, it's a personal knowing. And secondly, his righteousness alone, what it means to know Christ is to stand before God according to his righteousness alone. Notice how Paul stresses that there is only one, in this whole passage, there's only one Jesus Christ to know. And it is the Jesus Christ who imputes his righteousness to every one of his people. You can see this in verses 8 through 10. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a... What does it mean to relate to Christ? It means I don't have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. Right? There's only one Jesus to know. It's the Jesus who imparts, or excuse me, who imputes and reckons his righteousness to sinners. To know Jesus means to know him as the only one from whom your righteousness comes, all of your righteousness. And friends, if you only know a Jesus who grants his forgiveness to sinners, then you do not know the real Jesus. Because the real Jesus gives far more than forgiveness to sinners. He grants his righteousness to them. That's the Jesus that Paul is describing And that means to know Jesus Christ, means to know him as the one who has abolished all human pride and all human despair. Think about who Paul was. He was simultaneously, I mean, he is perfect. He is perfect to teach us what the gospel is because you look at his resume and he was the best, he he had the best righteousness on earth that a man could give to God, and yet when he met Jesus Christ, his best righteousness was seen as totally inadequate alongside Jesus's. So there is no room for human pride before Jesus. 
because his righteousness is so great. But by the same token, the same Paul, because he was a persecutor of the church, also was guilty of the worst unrighteousness that a human being could be guilty of before God. And yet even then Jesus Christ came in and abolished his despair. How? By the power of his righteousness that he imputed to Paul. You see that's true for you and for me. The proudest among us is laid low by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, mercifully laid low. And the lowest and the guiltiest among us is raised high. There's only one Jesus to know, and he is not simply a Jesus who grants forgiveness. He is a Jesus who also grants his righteousness to sinners. And then the phrase, the third thing, is the worth of Christ. What it means to know Jesus is that we know him as our Lord, my Lord. We know him as the, 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 the Savior who imputes his righteousness to us. And, and uh, thirdly, we know him as the Savior of surpassing worth. And this is the phrase that I just can't uh, get by. Um, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I, I'm going to knock on that verse until I die. Now, Paul expresses it very dramatically, much more bluntly than uh, translators are comfortable expressing. Because you go, when, when he's talking about the worth of Christ, what makes, uh, how does Paul express this worth of Christ? Well, if you keep going, in verse 8, listen to the way he speaks. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, the ESV knows, uh, wants to deal politely with us, but the word literally is dung. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as dung when compared to Christ. The value differential. The value differential between the best rewards of the world and the worth of Christ is so great that if you had all the accolades of the world, and Paul, by the way, has lived on both sides of the divide, right? He has lived, so we ought to listen to him. He has lived on the side of the divide where, before he knew Christ, he was an up-and-comer. He had the accolades of his world. And now he has Christ. And he understands who Christ is and what Christ has done for him and what Christ has given to him. And he looks back at all the accolades of the world. He says, to have all of those but not to have Christ is to have lost everything. But to have Christ and to have none of those things means that I have everything. Now, who taught Paul how to count like that? Where did Paul learn to count like that? He learned to count like that from his master. His master taught, our master taught him to count that way, just as he teaches us to count that way. You just go back one chapter in chapter 2, when Paul is speaking about Christ's testimony, he says, although he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Right, But he emptied himself. He made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant and being born... <clears throat> in the likeness of men and being found in the light being found uh, being being found in the likeness of men he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Paul learned to count from his king. Because what his king did is his king said, Jesus, our king, said, I am not going to grasp equality with God. I'm not, I'm not going to, equality with God is not going to be a thing I grasp so that I might grasp humanity. And not just humanity, but I'm going to grasp sinful humanity. Sinful humanity under the wrath and judgment of God. That's why I did not grasp equality with God. And you see, that's how Paul learned to count this way in the world because that's how Jesus Christ learned to count in the world. It's an amazing thing. You see, we never get to the bottom of the achievements of Christ. You see, that, that mindset, that is an alien operating system, is it not? And where did Paul learn it? He didn't just make it up himself. This is what his master did. That mindset comes from meditating on the cross and the gospel, the gospel that continues to propagate its gracious upheaval in the lives of the people of Christ. And then finally, friends, I know, I know this is long, I know, but I just want you to know where you are. I want to finish by making sure, my brothers and sisters, that you know where you are. And my non-Christian friends, I want you to know where you are. There are only two options this morning. You are either found in Christ or you are found outside of Christ. Those are the only two places that a human being can be in the universe. One of those leaves you under the wrath of God and in your sins and unreconciled to God and estranged from him. And, I, and it is unnecessary for you to stay there. You can be found in Christ this morning. And I want you to listen as I speak to my brothers and sisters in Christ about what it means to be found in Christ. And I have prayed that you will, your heart will be swept off its feet and that you will press in to gain Christ. Because my Christian brothers and sisters, do you know where you are? When God looks for you right now, where does he find you? He finds you in his son. This is what it means to be you now, my brother and sister. It means that you are found by God in Jesus Christ. The Father set his love upon you from before the foundation of the world so that you would be found in Christ. This is what it means to be you now and what it will mean for all eternity. And not just found by the Father in Christ. You're found by Jesus himself in Christ. When Jesus thinks of you, my brother and sister, he thinks of you as in himself. When Mike Francis comes up on the screen of Jesus Christ's mind, I am located inside Jesus Christ. In, within all the shelter of all his achievements and all of his accomplishments and all of his acceptance with God and all of his vindication, and not only me, but every single brother and sister I have in Christ, in this most intimate relationship with him. Jesus doesn't just say, oh yeah, Mike's saved. He prayed the prayer. No. Jesus Christ thinks about every one of his people that they are in one flesh with him. And the Holy Spirit 
When he looks for you, where does he find you? Exactly where he puts you when he declared over you in all of your darkness and your guilt, let there be light. When he joined you to Jesus Christ, he finds you in Jesus Christ. Friends, this is what it means to be you now and what it will mean forever and ever and ever. If you are in Christ, this is what it means to be you now and what it, means, what it will mean to be you forever. You are found in him. And when you look for yourself, look for yourself in Christ. This is where you are. You were lost, but you're not lost anymore. And you're not lost anymore, not because you found yourself, but because he found you, because the Son of Man came to seek and to find and to save you when you were lost. And because he found you, you will always stay found. Lord, we pray now for the jealousy of Jesus Christ for his own glory to make way in our minds and in our souls for his exclusive honor in our motivations in the way we think about our decisions, in the way we think about our deeds, in our repentance, and in our functional trust and hope, and the way we understand our identity. And oh Lord, how I pray today that you will have bestowed, you universe-creating God, you out of nothing producing a universe God, that you would today, out of nothingness, no seed of goodness, no ability or potential that you will have spoken into existence justified sinners this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.